went to deliver the news to Chancellor Greylark. But Gela felt she needed to remain behind instead of rush forward. Axel didn't go anywhere without his droid. There had been an obvious struggle, which Axel had won. But why was Viceroy Farrell on Iram? No one could say it was because of the evidence against Farrell. The summit had kept its origin secret. I should be here, Gela said. But she thanked her fellow Jedi Knight and got to work. The QN1 was so small, she needed the tiniest screws and drivers. Piecing together the droid was its own form of meditation. She had to clear her mind and focus on a wire, memory bank, the energy cell that powered Quinn's light panel. They knew Axel had run because his ship was no longer in docking bay 26. She remembered Master Sun saying that someone operated in the light. She felt the slow realization creep up, and then her mind denying it. What if... Oh, she had been wrong. What if they had all been wrong? When Quinn was assembled, Gela accessed its memory bank, scrolling through all the recordings. She did not sleep. She listened to every single one. The first were reports to Chancellor Greylark of their journey. Mundane things. Sometimes he spoke, or complained, about Gela. Once he made a reminder to send a wedding gift to Fontu and Ziri. After that, it wasn't a voice recording, but a hollow recording. Gela closed her eyes summoning strength from the Force. She rubbed her fingers across the top of her hand and watched him speak to someone who had no name or face. Given his injuries, the Hollow was from the day they'd been attacked by Rev Farrell and the children of Arano. He sat, face bloody, on the side of the mountain. And the Jedi didn't survive the crash. The Susurus voice asked. There weren't enough parachutes, but I won't know for sure until I get back to the village, Axel said, his voice dark. This Jedi is different. Impressive, I mean. Chaos. You're not sad, are you? Axel's face twisted back into his carefree mask. Of course not. I did just fall out of a burning ship. Actually, I think I was pushed. There was a sound. Rocks clattering. Axel scrambled to his feet and drew his blaster. What did you hear? The wailing voice of a Tintinna tried to speak, but Axel pulled the trigger. Gela watched hollow after hollow, then watched them again presenting them to both royal families, her fellow Jedi, and both chancellors. By the time the sun rose the next morning, the day of the wedding, Gela thought she could quote him from memory. Of one thing she was certain, Axel Greylark was still in the capital, toting three vials of deadly poison, and she was going to find him.
Enya Keen raced across the roofs of Erasmus' capital city with Gela and Ada Forte to reach the docking bay. The streets were like congested arteries, too crowded to run through. In the southern parts of the city, the buildings were closer together, which made every jump, every leap feel that much faster. When they reached the bay, they perched high up under a canvas overhang and clothesline. That's a lot of wedding guests, Enya said. Every bay was taken, so ships clustered anywhere else they could. Some of the smaller ones had the same idea as the Jedi and landed on any available roof. Though as they watched beings disembark and stomp through the canal streets and toward the palace, Enya couldn't help but think that these guests did not appear to be dressed for a wedding. Are we sure this Greylock is even still on planet? Ada asked. He's here, Gela said firmly. Enya sensed her friend's eerie calm, like it took all her focus to concentrate. Axel's final holo recording had said, change of plans. That was it. No, hello, fellow criminal. Let me reveal my detailed intentions so the Jedi can thwart me. I don't understand, Ada said. Why not postpone the wedding until the threat is eliminated? Enya clapped the Nikto Jedi Knight on her back. She was new to the world and hadn't had to sit through all the shouting between the older royals. Something in the air feels like now or never. And you really think he'll strike at the wedding? Ada asked as she scanned the crowds. From what Master Sun told me, he's had plenty of easier opportunities to attack both heirs. He's here, Gela repeated just as firmly. Keep looking. It's strange to me that so many guests would arrive underdressed, Ada said, squinting as the sun shifted out of a pocket of clouds. Perhaps they're not guests, Gela said. Enya watched a group of lizard-faced Trandosians weave through the crowd, hips armed with blasters. A small, furry Lerman with a prosthetic metal eye and a bandolier across his skinny chest limped his way through the crowd. A short, furry purple being with two green antennae stopped right in the middle of traffic. She was consulting a hollow projection from her gauntlet a spear clutched in one hand, and several daggers sheathed on her belt. It was the cape that looked familiar to Enya. Its hem cut in jagged lines to fit the being's height. Doesn't that cape remind you of someone? Enya asked Gela. Gela jumped first, landing in front of the traveler in a crouch, and Enya and Ida followed right behind. Hello there, I'm Enya she said. Where'd you get your cape? The vulpine-faced being made a little growling sound, then looked the Jedi up and down. Perhaps she recognized a threat. Perhaps it was something else. But she said, I'm Chiro, one from a nerf herder on Coruscant. She raised her arm, and the hollow projection was clear. Axel Greylark smiled at them from what looked like a detention photo. Every single comm device around them seemed to be pinging, as if from a tracker. 
He's broadcasting his signal like he wants to be found. <laughs> Chiro chuckled and ambled away to join the foot traffic on the way to the palace. These aren't wedding guests, Enya said, dread pooling in her stomach. They're bounty hunters. Warn the Jedi, Gelanatai shouted, and tell the queen to order the dome closed to prevent more ships from getting in. Ada began to run, but braked to a stop when she noticed two neon blue Jobin S-14 speeder bikes. She hopped on the saddle of one, and Enya held on tight behind her. Gela mounted the second one and heard a surprised, Hey, come back here! as she bolted. She had a distinct memory of Axel's reaction when she and Enya had commandeered his ship. As she bounced against the shock of the repulsor lift, she blasted into the humid street that lined the coast. She felt him through the force. A tether she had not understood was forming, but couldn't sever. Not yet. Gemma. It was as if he were in the clouds, the mist changing shapes the way he changed clothes and smiles. But she couldn't see the eventide in the sky, and it wasn't small enough to be on one of the shanty roofs. Gilla! Louder, angrier, she tugged at their tether and followed the reverberation of her name. She wondered, was he even aware that he was calling her? Broadcasting himself like he'd done to those bounty hunters? Gela snaked the speeder along the coast, hugged by crashing waves. Where Arano was all jagged stones and canyons splitting the ground like wounds, Iram's edges had been weathered away by relentless seas. She gave up her body to instinct in a way she never had before. She trusted in the Force. She trusted that it brought them together for reasons that might not be clear from the moment he sauntered into the Paxian. Cold air rushed around her, and every muscle in her body tightened. In that breath, she turned the speeder onto a narrow rocky path that led to the tower emitting the energy dome. She hadn't fully powered down the bike before she dismounted. The door was blasted shut. When she unholstered her twin lightsabers, Gela remembered Axel cutting a hole in a reinforced glass wall. He'd been ordered to leave her behind. So why hadn't he? She'd been locked in that cell with nowhere to go. Instead, he'd returned. She'd seen how he vacillated between selves. So why, when it would have been as neat as a cauterized wound, had he turned around? Gela needed to know. Holding on to that thought, she cut her way into the tower. Gela punched the lift open and stepped inside. She ascended a few levels before it shook and came to a stop. She used her lightsabers to cut a hole in the ceiling, then climbed up the empty shaft. Gela! He didn't say her name, but he was thinking it so fervently that she could sense its impression in her mind. When she reached the top, the lift doors were open. She hopped onto the ledge and found Axel, still dressed in the clothes from the night before, 
standing in front of the tower's control panels. Blue light pulsed from a slender blue vial affixed to an explosive. I had every bit of faith you'd find me, he said, turning the detonator between his fingers. My Jedi Knight. Chapter 31 Erasmus City Center, Iram. Ziri Albaran, daughter of canyons and deserts, Thylefire Maid, would be married by the sea. The protective dome kept the lapping waves away, but thick storm clouds clung around the city. From her balcony in the Erasmus Palace, she watched her guests fill the sandstone courtyard where she and Fontu would become symbols. Ziri had never wanted to be a symbol, but as she'd gotten to know the Jedi, and as she watched the people of Iram and Erino turn to superstition to accept their union, she was beginning to understand the power of it all. She'd barely considered traveling the galaxy, and now the galaxy had come to her. Chancellor Greylark, in a sweeping gown and headdress, sat alone in the front pew. Ziri decided she had great admiration for the woman. At dawn, she'd been told that her son was loose in the capital with three poisonous weapons. And close to sunset, she sat with her head high after giving an order to capture and stun on sight. Soon, perhaps sooner than expected, there would be fallout. And if she ever saw Axel Greylark again, she'd make him pay for breaking their hearts. But for now, everyone at the peace summit agreed the wedding had to proceed. Ziri, most of all, was eager for it to start. There was some commotion at the front gates, but she trusted in the ability of Arano and Iram's guards, as well as the noble Jedi. You will look like an Arano sunset, the monarch said. Dressed in staid black and gray, he waited for her at the door. As she took his arm, and they descended the spiral stairs that led to the courtyard, she felt like an Arano sunset. The gown had been her mother's, reds and pinks dipped in gold. Queen Adriala and consort Odelia had gifted her a matching veil, heavy with pearls. Fontu had caught them all himself. Her gift to herself was a weapon, very cleverly concealed. For Erino, her father whispered, leaving her to walk the rest of the way on her own. You are my greatest joy, Ziri. I will make you proud, she said. He kissed her knuckles. You already have. Barefoot, Ziri stepped onto a sandbar that stretched the entire length of the courtyard where Chancellor Malo waited to officiate. On the other side, Fontu Zen waited. Irami married in all white, but at his hip, he sported a new bane blade with a handle made of pale green gems. This was the easy part, she thought. 
Everything else, the rest of their lives, would be the real test. As the music began, Ziri and Fawn too began their walk across the sand to each other. Before she could meet him halfway, the first blaster shots fired. Master Creighton's son believed he'd taken every precaution. All entrances to the courtyard were funneled to a single gate. The last guests he welcomed were a pair of Ithorians wearing colorful, heavy tunics. With all seats filled, he gave a cursory glance to the Erany guards stationed on the palace turrets. Jedi were placed all around the palace, some blending in with the guests, and some, like himself, in formal Jedi attire. The Erasmus Sea crashed in looming waves against the dome. The storm season had chosen quite a day to arrive early, though Creighton knew of all things within their control. The weather was the least of it. Creighton? Master Roy said into his calm. What do you see? Creighton knew the Serian Jedi was up on a balcony ledge and heard the worry in his voice. But as Ziri, Fontu, and Chancellor Molo took their places at the edge of the courtyard, Creighton sensed the disturbance through the Force. The six Iremi guards posted at the gate moved like a ripple, engaging their electrostaffs as tardy guests drew nearer. Creighton positioned himself between them and the uninvited guests. A broad Trandoshan and his pack edged to the front of the crowd. Each one sported double-crossed bandoliers. Creighton motioned for Erino's guards to join them on the courtyard level, then held up his comlink. How much longer is the ceremony? It hasn't started yet, said a voice he recognized as Jedi Knight Lon. The man was somewhere among the guests. Speeder approaching, announced another. Hold, Charil Roy ordered. It's my Padawan. Creighton heard the revolving hum of a speeder bike before he saw it cut a path through the crowd. And Yakin and Ada Forte zoomed up the rocky palace path, narrowly missing the entrance as they broke to a stop beneath the sandstone arch. Master, we have a new problem, Enya said breathlessly, pointing in the direction they'd sped in from. Yes, we've seen them. All of Creighton's worry and fear transformed into energy. He felt the deadly calm that came before a storm, and he even allowed himself a wry smirk as it began to rain against the city's protective dome. Maybe the royals are just friends with a lot of mercenaries? One of the younger Jedi mused through the calm. Enya shook her head. Axel's got a bounty on his head, and something is broadcasting his location. They all think he's here. Geller's still looking for him, Ada said. Someone find this beacon and shut it off, Creighton ordered. He trusted Gela would find Axel Greylark. In the meantime, there was a truce to protect. The rest of us will stall as much as we can. The music rose above the churn of waves, Aziri and Fawn too took their first steps toward each other. 
The horde of bounty hunters and guns for hire crowded the gate, shoving one another in agitation. Behind the Jedi, Iram's guards formed a living barricade, propping up electrostaffs like links in a chain. I don't believe you have an invitation, Master Sun said, attempting to reason with the crowd, at the very least until the ceremony was finished. Actually, I do. The lead mercenary sneered. Behind him, dozens more raised the same hollow projection. Axel Greylark invites you to catch him if you can. If the only thing standing between me and 300,000 credits is you, then I like my chances, wizard. Honestly, Enya said, sinking into a fighting stance. Why do people say wizard like it's a bad thing? Creighton quickly glanced at the ceremony underway. Fontu and Ziri standing before Chancellor Malo, and then at the Trandoshan, snarling at him. I can assure you, Axel Greylark isn't here, Master Sun said, his voice a deep rumble. A blue-skinned Pantoran woman with a shock of gray hair slammed her staff on the rocky ground. She held up the signal broadcasting from the palace. That's not what this says. The restless crowd shoved from all sides, and Creighton knew there was no stalling. I've always wanted to fight a Jedi, the Trandoshan said, raising his blaster. Creighton gripped his lightsaber and ignited the blue plasma blade in defense. He shielded his face from the blast. One by one, he felt the familiar hum of a dozen lightsabers flare to life. A prism of colors deflecting a volley of blaster fire. Most of the mercenaries shot wildly for the sake of destruction and to get inside. But the better shots landed blows. A Jedi gripped her shoulder and fell back. A guard in patina-flecked armor cupped his knee. Creighton doubled his effort and pushed against the frenzied crowd. He snatched blasters through the force. But some mercenaries had blasters strapped to every hip, tentacle, or hunched shoulder. As he slashed the Pantoran staff in two, another mercenary slipped through their defenses. Farther down the road, the next wave of intruders seeking to claim their prize approached. What's the status on the beacon? Master Sun shouted into the comlink. The crowd had begun to shoot blindly at them. I need a barricade around the guests. The last thing we need are easy targets running around. Everyone's a little busy at the moment, Master. Enya Keen raised her yellow lightsaber and deflected a red blaster bolt. She nearly missed another when Master Roy leapt in front of her, blocking the fire with his green blade. All Jedi to me, Master Roy bellowed. One by one, Jedi stood side by side, a blur of blades, while the wedding music escalated in tempo. While the guests ran for the safety of the palace, Fontu Zen and Ziri Albaran reached for each other's hands. This wasn't what I had in mind when I thought we were bringing worlds together, Creighton admitted, 
cleaving a blaster rifle in half. He almost felt pity for the Twi'lek as he used the force to fling her into a saltwater bush. Perhaps it's better, Master Roy said, though he framed it as a question. Time will tell. Creighton ducked as a massive Lasat twirled a bow rifle with electric blue energy. He missed, but slammed it into Jedi Lon's chest. The Falleen Jedi shook violently for a moment that stretched painfully before Master Sun's eyes. Creighton swung his cross-hilt lightsaber upward, severing the Lasat's hands. The wound cauterized instantly, and the hands rolled into the mass of bounty hunters. Creighton gathered the felled Jedi in his arms, already knowing it was too late. He took a steady breath and closed the young man's eyes. Rest well, my friend. Beside him, an Iromi guard dropped to his right, another to his left. He heard the crack of a cranium, blood rushing to fill the cracks in the sandstone. Creighton watched the light leave the woman's green eyes, one with the Force. Oh. Master Sun centered himself. He stood, raising his lightsaber, and opened his connection to the Force. It was the place where he found strength, where he knew he belonged. He added that strength to his fellow Jedi. They were a linked chain. The might of the Jedi, a wall united as one upon which the bounty hunters beat their fists and fired arrows and bolts. And the Jedi would hold together. An angry Lurman with multiple prosthetics climbed up a coral tree and cried, Hand over, Axel Greylark! He isn't here! Ada Forte roared over the tumult. Focus! Master Sun reminded them, as small but furious mercenaries threatened to slip through their flanks. The Lurman jumped high, using the strength of his mechanical arm to pull himself up a sandstone column leading to a balcony. There was the sound of blaster fire, screams from on high. Something metal landed at Creighton's boots and rattled to a stop. A gas canister. He seized it and tried to throw it skyward. Too late. It exploded into billowing yellow gas. He screamed as his eyes burned and choked as he inhaled the sulfurous clouds. He felt the Jedi lose their connection in the Force one by one as pain lanced through him. Momentary relief came when someone poured a liquid onto his face. He spat out the acrid remedy that ran from his eyes into his mouth. When he blinked, his eyesight was partially blurred, but he got back up. A cheer went up among the remaining guests, and the orchestra burst into a raucous, joyful song that signaled the end of the wedding ceremony. He spat on the ground once more, squeezed the hilt of his lightsaber, then smiled at the Trandoshan who'd fallen back. What's so funny? The bounty hunter hissed. What's that sound? Charil Roy returned to his side, as they had been for years. Now they were joined by their fellow Jedi and the delegations they had stayed to protect. As bells rang, 
Creighton knew the wedding was done. It was over, but his fight was just beginning. While the bounty hunters and mercenaries charged through the gate, Ziri remained rooted to the ground. I don't care if there's a monsoon coming for us, Ziri told Chancellor Malo. You do not stop the ceremony. Perhaps a shorter, more poetic version? The Quarren said, nervous face tentacles dancing in the sea air. On their sandy perch, the princess squeezed Fontu's hands. Many of their guests had run for cover, but some delegations, including the Twi'lek and Moncala security details, remained to fight. Arany civilians and veterans protected the ceremony by upturning pews and making barricades. On the other side of the shield, the Erasmus Sea swelled, crashing in waves that would swallow the palace if there were no dome. Repeat after me, Malo said, his voice admirably even and strong. My blood is the ocean. My bones are the salt. Fontu's gaze never wavered. A coy smile tugging his lips when he said, My blood is the ocean. My bones are the salt. But I give you my heart. He flinched as something heavy crashed, shattered. Ziri inhaled as the shouting came closer. Still, they didn't move. But I give you my heart, Fontu said. Until Iram's last breath. Until Iram's last breath. Chancellor Malo's expression betrayed his anxiety, but to his credit, he continued. Now you, princess. Ziri held on to her husband's hands, an anchor in the storm, and said, My blood is the ocean, my bones are the salt, but I give you my heart until Iram's last breath. With the sea as your witness, and my authority in the galaxy, your union is bound. Chancellor Malo turned and called out to one of his security officers. The officer tossed a small blaster to the Chancellor, who caught it and commenced firing at the wedding crashers, using the overturned bench of the front row as cover. Ziri and Fontu had a single moment together. He gripped her waist and pulled her close. Can I? He whispered. Hold that thought. Ziri rocked up her wedding dress. She unholstered a tiny red blaster, leveled it at an encroaching bounty hunter, and fired. I am madly in love with you, Fontu said. Good. Ziri pushed herself up on her toes and kissed him like their world was coming to an end. As the Paxian appeared over the city, its hull blazing fire, their end felt like a certainty. Chapter 32, Erasmus City Center, Iram. Gelanatai and Axel Greylark stood on an edge at the heart of the tower powering the dome. She took a step closer to him and he held up a narrow trigger, resting his thumb there. Detonators blinked from the control panels that emitted the dome that shielded the city, 
and wedged between them, a poison vial he'd stolen. Why, Axel? Gella finally asked. She'd thought she'd had him figured out every time they kept meeting. Aboard the Paxion, at the funeral, at the summit, traveling the deserts of Arano together. Axel Greylark was ephemeral, molten, and slippery. You have to be specific, darling, he said. There was so much to choose from. But she started with, Why are you trying to destroy the dome? I'm not trying to do anything, he said, devoid of humor. I will bring down the shield. He was cruel to mock the words she'd grown up hearing. Gela, do you know why these shields are up during Iram's fragments of peace? He turned the trigger between his long fingers. Because of their storms. She scratched at the inside of her palm, where her bracers dug into her skin. Fontu told us stories. It is the city's best protection. Even now, in what Iram probably considers mild weather, the waves rise high and fast. If Erino hadn't been trying to destroy it, Iram's own waters would slowly erode the coast. It's the only thing keeping even the palace from washing away. Gela had been blind to the truth in front of her. Now she could see. There are other ways to destroy the poison. Axel, I know everything. Axel turned to face the darkening clouds. The shadows under his eyes were more pronounced. Then you know I was supposed to deliver the vials to... someone. But I've had a change of heart. She took a tentative step forward. You want to destroy it? I'll help you. I'll do it right now. Think of the rays. Fontu's home. Axel shrugged. But his usual bravado wasn't in it. I'm sure Iram's used to a little destruction. What do I care? Why did you risk your life for Fontu and Ziri if you didn't care? Gela took another step. Because I am very good at wearing people down, he said. Their love is a dream. Give it a few years, maybe a generation or two, and they'll be right back where they started. The only certainties in the galaxy are war and chaos, Gela. That's what she called you, the woman from your hollows. He stopped smiling then and pressed down on the spot over his heart. <clears throat> you want to know the truth? Do you know how to speak it? Axel's lips tugged into a smile. <laughs> I killed Viceroy Farrell. I know. I've spent part of my life trying to be the perfect Greylock, and another being the best of the worst. When the Viceroy attacked me, there was a moment when I knew it was over. And then I came to my senses, and I saw my opportunity to simply stop. Stop being a Greylark. Start new somewhere. That was one of the first things he'd said about himself. He wanted to burn fast and bright. A supernova. That's what he was to her. A distant star, fading. 
and fading. But you won't lie for me, will you, Gela? He held her stare, and she thought of every time they were on the Amaryllis and played the same game. This time, she lost. You won't lie for me, because you are good, truly. Gela took another step toward him. So are you. You can't fix me, Gela. I don't want to fix you. He laughed. <laughs> you want to fix the whole galaxy, but not me. I don't want to fix you, she stressed. Then what do you want from me, Gela? Wind swept through his hair, the open collar of his tunic. Bruises blossomed across his throat, where he must have struggled against the Viceroy. She sought strength from the Force. Why didn't you leave me behind when your master ordered you otherwise? Axel glowered. She felt him grasp for a lie, then redirect. I don't have a master. I'm not an apprentice. I don't need anyone to teach me. Then who are they? He shrugged. They are free from the Jedi. They are simple. He truly didn't know anything about life as a Jedi if he didn't think life was simple. Free from Jedi, but not from murder? They are simple, says the man who lives in a glass tower at the center of the galaxy. Axel's vulpine smile reappeared. Are you angry, Gela? Of course I am! She gestured at the sky. You have all the potential in the galaxy! You wouldn't say that if you knew the things I've done, he said darkly. I put Quinn back together she told him, and watched his face soften. We watched your hollows, all of us. Your mother, Ziri, Fontu. I know exactly what you're capable of, and I'm not afraid. I can help you. He crossed his arms over his chest. Help me be better. Tell me, what will you do to Queen Adriala? for creating a poison she intended to use on Erano. We don't punish people, Axel. You know enough to know that. There was a moment, he said, blinking rapidly, when I was unconscious that I relived everything I was afraid of. Everything. The pain was excruciating. I never want to feel that way again. I wouldn't wish that even on beings I hate. And there are many. No one should have weapons like this. Gela felt his nudge of doubt. We will destroy the poison. I promise. Tell me where it is. And then what? He scoffed. It is over for me. I can't go back to being Axel Greylark anymore. Go home, little Jedi. Wherever that may be. Why, out of every cruel thing he'd said, did that last part hurt the most? Gela took a deep, calming breath and reached out into the Force. She seized the trigger control from his fist and put it into hers. 
Dracula would keep her promise and destroy the poison so that no one could claim the terrible weapon. She pressed down on her comlink to call for the Jedi, but then Axel spoke. Did you know? Axel began. With such deep calm, she knew instantly she'd made a mistake. He peered at his watch. That there are three shield towers in this saltwater wonder. And if one goes down, so do the others. Bells rang around the city. The wedding, it must have finished. Gela ran to the edge of the tower balcony. Even if she pushed herself to the limit, even if she could vanish and reappear somewhere else, she wouldn't have made it to the other two locations. Axel, Gela said, as the electrostatic shield towers in the north and east sectors detonated. Iram stood still. One moment the dome was operational, the following moment there was an explosion, then another, and the electrostatic dome came down. The white bands around the city crackled, and as the dust settled, the first waves lapped along the coasts and canals. Confusion filled the streets as celebration gave way to fear and panic. Even the bounty hunters who had come in droves began to cut their losses, fleeing back toward their ships while they still had a chance. The Paxian, which had appeared in the sky moments before, began to change course. Chancellor Malo couldn't understand what he was seeing. Then he dragged his palms along his face and bellowed for the crew aboard. Everyone in the courtyard gathered and watched the sky fall. Come in, Paxion! Vigo shouted into a comlink. The guard waited a breath for an answer, then said again, Come in, Paxion! Silence, then a low, vicious voice. The children of Arano will rise. Riv Feral, the monarch said with distaste. As the long beams sank between the clouds, a cadre of drill ships tore through the hull. Screams filled the city, rising and cresting like the ocean that swept in. Ziri Albaran, still in her wedding dress, set her shoulders in defiance and said to Vigo, I need a starfighter. Fontu's fear-stricken face said it all. You can't. Look at what he did to the Paxian. She clapped her palms on his shoulders and squeezed. Those are Arano's ships. This is a mutiny, and I have to stop it. I'll come with you. You have to be here, and I have to be up there. We have to make sure our people are safe. Together. Together, Fontu repeated. As Fontu Zen took a contingent of guards to help evacuate the city, a small squadron of guards from Arano and Iram marched up to Captain Albaran, led by Kinney and others Ziri recognized as some of her Thylefire squadron. Reporting for duty, said Kinney. Ziri hooked an arm over the older woman's shoulder and led the way to the palace's hangar bay. 
With no time to spare, Ziri boarded one of Iram's starfighters. The metal had a blue tint, the canopy bulbous as the familiar pressurized hiss sealed the cockpit. The last time she'd been in a starfighter, she'd fallen from the sky and nearly drowned. It was the day Fontu had appeared in her life and saved her. Had she ever truly thanked him for what he'd done? More than pull her out of the ocean, he'd breathed hope into a fight she'd begun to think couldn't be won. She wouldn't let anyone tear apart what they had built. All right, Siri said, marveling that this might be the first time soldiers from their two planets had fought side by side in her lifetime. Thylefire Squadron, on me. They called off their numbers, 13 altogether. Arano and Iram, united. As they blasted into the air, Ziri Albaran, the heir of Arano and future queen consort of Iram, had known she'd have to defend their peace, but she hadn't expected it to be so soon. They would simply have to make this one count. Debris fell from the sky as Fontu Zen raced on an agopai to the raised canal. Above, the Paxians split in two, listing toward the Erasmus Sea. The nose of the ship headed for a sliver of the coast. Bulbous Iramy starfighters shot at the contrails of flaming wreckage, breaking up the biggest pieces while navigating around the escape pods jettisoned into the sky. The tide was high and waves flooded the thresholds of the sandstone shanties. Some people carried what they could bear, a child in one hand and a small bundle in the other, and made their way toward shelter. On the ground, Fontu had a different problem. Many of the inhabitants of the Rays wouldn't budge. Elders too frail to move on their own. Some were indifferent to the shower of debris, saying, the monsoons are worse. Fontu rode out to the small bridge connecting the canal to the other networks of waterways. He tugged his agopai to a stop. You know me, he shouted. I was born on the farthest house on this canal. I know you're afraid. So am I. My wife, your princess, is fighting for you. But we can't protect you if you remain here. What about our belongings? A wrinkled old woman shouted from one of the houses on the upper level. As a piece of shrapnel fell into the water, they all flinched. When I was a little boy, my mother wouldn't go either. You remember her. You knew her. I ask you now, put your trust in me and I will do everything I can to keep you safe. Fontu turned his steed and waited. He had never been a fighter or a pilot, but he was strong in other ways. He could lead his people when they needed him the most. Slowly, families emerged from their homes, their packs and duffels filled with the belongings they could shoulder. The old woman stayed. Some people were so rooted, nothing and no one could get them out. It was their choice, and he respected it. For now, he did what he could. 
he gave up his steed so that a pregnant woman and her two children could ride. He shouldered the weight of an elder and led them all to safety. As they made their way back to the palace, the entire ground trembled. Chapter 33, Erasmus City Center, Iram. Farther out in the water, the Paxian was listing. Ziri called for a water evac and prayed to the force that there were survivors. Ziri hailed Rev Farrell as her squadron sighted and approached the three drill ships that loomed over the capital city. Rev Farrell, you are not authorized to take decommissioned ships off-world. I do not recognize orders from the future Queen of Iram he said, dripping with anger. Retreat, or we will open fire. This is your one and final warning. Ciri kept her controls steady, despite the fear coursing through her. She welcomed the fear. It gave her something to fight against. The three drill ships didn't budge. Fire. Every Iramie starfighter was half the size of a single drill ship, and every single one of her squadron gave everything they had, lighting up the massive drifting clouds and blue skies with red laser fire. But it wasn't enough. Not yet. She thought of how a constant drop of water could wear a hole through solid stone. There was something there. She just had to find it. My turn. Farrell's voice crackled through the calm as all three drill ships returned fire, accelerating forward and picking up speed. One of them activated their drill nose, gutting one of Ceres pilots. She swore and flew evasively, firing from all sides, then diverted energy to her forward thrusters. They couldn't keep firing at impenetrable ships. Her father had bought those drill ships with funds reserved for the drought, and all she wanted was to see them buried. Below, the Paxian slipped into the sea. Ciri's mind raced as she flew. Then, she thought of Gela, telling her, He's big, but you're fast. Underestimated. The thought sparked. File fire two, Ziri said. Kinney, come in. Yes, Captain. Do you remember that move you taught me in Sigaru? The veteran pilot chuckled. <laughs> the Kestros dive or the Orokanoa sweep? The dive, Ziri said. Those ships are solid, but they're clunky. Damage versus speed. Loud and clear, Captain. <laughs> Kenny whooped as they gave chase and flew far across the ocean until the coast of the city felt distant. But before they could go down, they had to climb higher and higher. Is this what you had to do, Rev? Ziri asked. She needed to make sure that he chased her and kept the momentum on her tail. Too scared to challenge me for the throne? When I'm with you and your father, I will sit on that throne. His reply was a deep snarl. 
he gained on her. One of her fighters blinked off her screen. Her pulse roared in her ears. The way to someone like Rev Farrell was through his zealous pride. I suppose courage takes longer when the leader is you. He growled low. I would never surrender. You already did, remember? Do your children of Arano know that you declined a right? Rev seethed. And what honor is there in fighting a traitor? Did you tell your soldiers it was you who murdered Gerard Sigaru? When Ziri heard a small gasp through the open channel, she pressed her advantage, climbing the stormy Iramy sky higher and higher. It's not too late for your pilots. Listen to me. You can come home. Ziri pushed her starfighter higher and higher, then drifted into a wide arc. Her squadron followed like the tail of a comet at her back. Not one fighter broke formation, but one of Rev's did. The drill ship changed course suddenly, but the hulking ship was moving too fast to maneuver, and it rammed into one of the other drill ships. Rev roared in anger. You will never know peace, princess! I swear it on my father! When I'm through, Ziri promised. No one in Arano will even remember the feral name. You wanted a fight to the death, princess! This is your right! She smiled wide and knew she had him. She keyed the calm over to her squadron. Firefire squadron, break off. Head for the Paxian and help rescue survivors. I'll deal with Rev. The other Iramy starfighters turned away in unison, leaving Ziri alone with Rev on her tail. Together, they plummeted toward the ocean, faster and faster. The devastating spin of the drill closing in on Ziri's starfighter. Her sensors blinked that they were losing altitude and coming up on water fast. Drill ships were vicious, but heavy, clunky. But she was in an Iramy ship, and they were built to travel underwater. Rev's ship wavered erratically behind her, trying to pull up as Rev finally realized the cost of his blind rage. But it was too late. They were on a single trajectory. Ziri pushed her controls to the limit and dove beneath the waves first. She remembered that morning at the caves when Fontu had told the story of being swept out into the ocean, how safe he'd felt. She could finally understand why. The first time she'd gone under, she'd been alone, trapped. Fontu had swum to save her. This time, she was not alone. She had Fontu, her pilots, Iram and Arano, and the promise of a future united. Rev screamed as the drill ship crashed into the sea, tearing into the bedrock, splitting the underwater trench. Ziri knew what it felt like to stand on that precipice and live. Now she turned back to the surface and did not look back as the drill ship 
was swallowed into the deepest dark. Before Ziri led her enemy beneath the sea, Gelanatai watched space junk and bits of debris from the Paxian fall. It split and careened toward the water, but not before a couple of drill ships broke off parts of the canopy. Gela had the sinking memory of Chancellor Greylark saying she would be on the Paxion that day. She couldn't remember if she'd kept her word or not. Mother, Axel whispered, panting slowly. What did you think would happen, Axel? Gela was so focused on him, she didn't notice something hit the tower until it was too late. Metal crunched and warped, driving straight through. The ceiling above was falling in on them. It was only her control of the force that kept the two of them from being crushed by a slab of metal. She held on by a thread, the stubborn will to keep them alive. Gela, I'm... Shut up and help me. Her arms trembled from the concentrated effort. Face to face, there was nowhere for them to go. Axel, perhaps for the first time in his life, listened without making another quip. He stood, putting everything he had into supporting the metal slab above. It was too much. Her elbows were bending at the joints. Where are the vials, Axel? He shut his eyes and took a long moment before he said, The ones I stole are in the first two towers. And the others? Asked the queen. He shot back. I knew I couldn't reach the archives beneath the palace. I needed to create enough chaos to draw attention to what I did. I fed a hollow I recorded into an open channel. Everyone knows what I've done. He struggled against the weight of the falling ceiling. His eyes were unfocusing. Snap out of it! Gela barked. Her arms trembled as she tried to maintain her grasp through the force. You can't fake your own death if you die! He grunted and dropped to one knee. I'm still weak, Gela. Can't you, I don't know, siphon my strength to make yourself stronger? The sound she made was between a cry and a laugh. After all this time, you truly don't understand the Force, do you? I never wanted to. Not before you. Axel's side of the roof tilted, the ground groaning like a terrible metal giant. Beads of sweat ran down the arc of his nose from the effort. He shook his head, slipping. She grunted with the effort it took to suspend the ceiling overhead. If we don't live through this, he began. We will live through this, she corrected, but trailed off. There could be no after for them. When they lived through this, he would be in prison, and she would face the Jedi Council. 
If we don't live through this, Axel said. I hope my ghost haunts yours for eternity. We don't believe in ghosts. Leave it to me to fall for a humanist Jedi. She didn't want to hear those words. Not from him. As Axel slumped to the floor, unconscious, Gela shut her eyes and did her best to clear her mind, to find the strength through the Force. I have every bit of faith in you, he'd said to her before he shoved her into that pit. Gela Natai trusted in the Force, in herself. She always landed on solid ground, and this time could be no different. Slowly, it worked. The weight loosened with every piece being moved through the Force. The Force is with me, she whispered, imagining every piece of wreckage that was trying to bury them alive. And I am one with the Force. She spoke the words again and again, until she and Axel lay atop a heap of rubble. The waves were so high, she could feel the spray of surf. The Paxian was gone, but a cluster of Iremi starfighters returned to the city, circling overhead. She was certain Ziri was leading the charge. Pushing herself, Gala sat up. Don't go. Stay, Axel said, blinking awake. He rubbed at the scar over his heart. I can't, she said, and yet she lingered. Gela brushed his hair back. There were fine cuts on his regal, bruised face. Perhaps Axel was right. It was impossible to regain something after it was broken. The scars would still be there. They served as memories so that it could never happen again. As she drew her hand away and left to get help, Gela was certain she would always prefer to have the scar. Chapter 34, Erasmus City Center, Iram. The new dawn for Iram and Erino began the day after the wedding. Getting married would be the easy part. The destruction to Erasmus' capital city was worse than any during the five years of the Forever War. They always rebuilt. Always. Now, Ziri Albarin and Fontu Zen had to unravel a secret of the galaxy. How do you make peace stay? For them, it would start with each other and follow with a formal treaty. But as the day grew long in Iram's meeting hall, all parties had to agree on the location. There was talk of multiple treaties, one on each planet, the same way they had initially planned wedding ceremonies. Ziri loved her deserts, and Fontu loved his oceans. And one day, they would have more than a legal document to negotiate. They had to rebuild both worlds and the trust of their people. 
they had to decide which planet they would live on, how to distribute the aid pouring in from planets formerly friends, now friends again. They promised each other and the summit that they would do it together. After everything that's happened, Ziri said, if we are a symbol of peace for the galaxy, then the treaty should be signed outside of our system. It was the first time that day that they all agreed. This marriage, this peace they had brokered, was a tender thing to be nurtured, like seedlings taking hold in solid ground, so deep not even future generations of Iram or Arano could uproot it. Chancellor Malo listened to Princess Siri speak during the final summit. The choice to Malo was obvious, but he did not rush to offer his suggestion at first. The destruction of the Paxian had left him gutted. Many of his crew had survived, thanks to escape pods, but the galaxy had lost so much for Iram and Arano. He needed these worlds to understand the cost of what could happen should words get broken, treaties breached. But he was getting ahead of himself. First, they needed a location. And for the first time in years, he looked forward to returning to Coruscant. He glanced at Chancellor Greylark with a great deal of sympathy. Even though she'd displayed no emotion when she'd had Axel arrested for conspiracy, murder, and terrorism. The two people not in attendance were Queen Adriala and the Queen Consort, who were enjoying a retreat in the Riviera. Because the Queen had agreed to destroy all the remaining poison, and because so much of Iram had been devastated by a son of the Republic, the royals of Iram would not be charged. And yet, Malo made a mental note that he and Kiong needed to monitor the situation. In particular, Iram's research facility. What about Coruscant? Chancellor Malo said. The monarch Albaran predictably rejected the idea. We are not of the Republic, lest we forget that. There are nearby worlds. Master Charil Roy offered. With Jedi temples, that would be a welcome middle ground. What about Jedha? Gelanatai suggested. The intrepid Jedi who had arrested Axel Greylark hadn't spoken a word all day until that moment. The monarch pursed his lips again. The Jedi world? The moon of Jedha is sacred to many, including the Jedi. Master Sun said. Much of our history is tied there, yes, but we have no claim over it. And it is already the natural home to many schools of thought, Gela added. One by one, they cast their votes until it was unanimous. After Iram and Arano stabilized their homes, they would prepare delegations and reconvene on the moon of Jeddah. As they parted ways, Chancellor Malo and what was left of the Paxian crew boarded Keong's longbeam, the Aurora Sun. It seemed they could not make the first hyperspace jump fast enough because they were halfway across the galaxy before Malo had properly settled in. 
Keong appeared at his door, and he naturally welcomed her in. ARK-4, who had survived the Paxian crash, busied herself with making the Chancellors comfortable. You can take your time, Malo told Keong. He'd known the woman to be stoic, but he'd never known her to be cold. Time for what? He hesitated to speak Axel Greylark's name. Axel Greylark. He'd always known the boy had ambition for destruction, but he hadn't imagined it would lead to this. Fantu Zen and Galanatai do attest that he helped save their lives on their journey. If you wanted to appeal for a reduced sentence... Kiyang sat forward. Her elaborate hair twisted into a crown of black braids. Her narrow eyes sparkled with something dark. I'm going to tell you this once, and only once. I serve the Republic. But for a moment, her stoic mask fell. The lines around her regal face cracked, and her bottom lip trembled. She breathed deeply. They were already breaking protocol by being on the same ship. He might as well go another step further. You should have trusted me, he told her, pressing down on the bruise of her son. It was something he never would have done before. But back then, he'd seen her as infallible. I do trust you, Orlin. She was rarely so informal. His name sounded strange at first. Then she moved past it. I wanted to trust Axel, too. He's always shown me who he is. I just didn't want to see it, because it feels like admitting that I have made a mistake I can't fix. Malo didn't know what to say to that. For the first time, he noticed Axel's repaired QN1 droid, powered down, grasped in Keong's hand. Before he could offer sympathy, her composure returned, and she sniffed her tea with distaste before setting it on the table without taking a sip. Perhaps we both need to do things differently. Perhaps, he agreed. First, he was going to need a new ship. Gelanatai and the Jedi remained on Irem for another week. They helped initiate cleanup of the many wreckages, including the destruction of the Belt of Debris in the Corridor of Space. On the final day of her stay, Gelanatai had one last dinner with friends. While Gela, Fontu, and Ziri never spoke his name, Axel Greylark's betrayal was a phantom limb among them. When they asked her to venture to Jeddah for the peace treaty, Gela, who had never truly had friends before, let alone friends who weren't Jedi, had to decline. But it was your idea, Ziri said over a plate of irami fried fish. Gela smiled widely. <laughs> a good one, too. Pardon me, but you spent weeks saying how much you want to go there, Fontu reminded her. 
pausing to sip a glass from a cask of Alderanian wine someone had gifted them for their wedding. I feel I am called elsewhere, she said, but I hope my journey returns me here. I know that if anyone in the galaxy has a chance to forge something stronger, better, brighter than before, it is you two. They did not say goodbye. Later that night, Gela meditated with Master Creighton's son on a pier behind the palace. The seas had calmed, which was fortunate, as it would take several more days to rebuild all three of the towers. I have some news for you, Gela, Master Sun said, easing his posture slightly. She waited and felt a foreign knot at the pit of her stomach. Before she left, Chancellor Greylock gifted you the Eventide. Axel's ship? Gela frowned. Well, Fon too did not want it. I sense the Chancellor does not want it to go to one of her son's more troubled friends. It was as the Force willed it. Speaking of travel, Gela told him, I would like to formally declare myself a wayseeker and plan my return to Coruscant to seek the permission of the Jedi Council. Master Sun watched her for a long time before flashing a rare smile. That is wonderful, Gela. I take it this means you won't join the summit on Jedha? Ada and I will be leaving soon, in advance of the peace talks. I'll get back there eventually. She inhaled the sea and watched the clouds roll in, bringing the scent of petrichor from the city streets. Why the change of heart? Gela did not have all the words to explain it. Not yet. But she did the best she could. While I was on Arano, I felt like the more I learned, the more I understood my place in the Force. That I am not in a rush anymore. Or simply, the Force is calling me, and I want to answer. But I won't know until I get there. Master Sun gently squeezed her shoulder. I would be honored to support you on behalf of the Council. Thank you, Master Sun. Gelanatai was on her way. She heard the call of the Force. She'd heard it her entire life, but now it was sharper. It was the song of stars charting routes to new worlds. It was the sigh of an ancient mountain. It was the churn of a sea change. As she sat in the cockpit of the Eventide, she familiarized herself with every part of it before leaving the docking bay. The Nava computer was programmed with hundreds of coordinates, and she flew across real space for hours before charting a destination. It was the galaxy calling her home. Epilogue, Prison Barge CA-73Z, Redacted. Axel Greylark woke in the dark. The cell was small, a narrow cot, a toilet, 
than three meals a day. The secure prison barge flew through the galaxy, and he had no idea where he was. When he tried to make small talk with the guards, they only grunted a response. He was convinced he would wear them down eventually. Most days, he passed the time retraining his muscles to obey him. His body revolted too often. On those days, he sat naked under the shower until his skin was red and angry. In those lowest moments, he remembered hot days across Erino's desert, falling through the skies, the poison that had burned through his veins. He almost considered begging the guards to let him send a hollow to Fontu and Ziri, to his mother. But he always stopped himself. No one came, not for days or weeks. Had it been weeks? In a place where every surface was the same metal, the same recycled plastic and glass, it was impossible to get a sense of the passage of time. When he was bored, he picked fights. He relished the pain that lanced through his septum when a mammoth Zygarian broke his nose. How he'd howled in the, albeit rare, matches he lost. And he loved betting on himself when the guards joined the covert fight rings. After a long time with no communication, he returned from the med bay to find a data pad sitting on the floor of his cell. It was broken, or frozen, rather. A single message emblazoned on it. Do you now see what comes of trusting Jedi? But I promise, I have not abandoned you, my chaos. Axel squeezed the data pad, pressing down on the crack until it snapped and glass splintered on his thumbs. Perhaps he'd been right when he'd told Fon too he'd end up running the place. Perhaps that was where his mother should have let him thrive. Perhaps there he could only hurt himself and a few who might deserve it. No one deserves that, Axel thought, and it sounded strangely like Gela. He tried not to think of her, his Jedi Knight. He wrote her name in the indistinguishable mush he ate for food. He saw her face in the subtle patterns and textures of the walls, the condensation on his water tin. He felt her presence, late when the lights were out, and all he had was himself and the memory of dancing with her on the last day he half considered he could be a good man. He'd done everything to prove to everyone, even himself, that he wasn't. He tried to carve her out of his heart, as she had done to him. But she was wedged inside like a splinter around which skin had grown. One day he'd get rid of it. Axel Greylark waited in his cell, ready to feed his chaos. This is Mark Thompson. We hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Star Wars Convergence. 
The High Republic by Zoraida Cordova. This program was produced and directed by Kevin Thompson. Executive producer, Nick Martorelli. Edited by Justin Kilpatrick. Post-production and sound mixing by Paul Goodrich at Merlin Studios. Star Wars The High Republic Convergence is a production of Lucasfilm Limited and registered or trademarked where indicated. Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Used under authorization. Music composed by John Williams. Music publishing by Warner Tamerlane Publishing Corporation and Bantha Music. Music Master Production Copyright 2007. Lucasfilm Limited. This has been a Penguin Random House audio presentation. All rights reserved. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.